Design. Architecture. Design. Garden. Design. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Lost and Found. And this week, dreams. Not all dreams are sleeping. We form our lives around hope and aspiration. Simple visions of what might be. That's the dream. Food dreaming. Tor Nielsen is a researcher at the University of Montreal, director of the Dream and Nightmare Laboratory. Tor, does what we eat before we sleep actually change our dreams? Well, you know, to, before I answer your question directly, just let me say that I have been asked this question for the last 30 years, uh, about the time that I've been studying dreams. Usually around food-centric holidays like Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, Halloween is a is a common one. And every time I've had to say, you know, we really don't know because there is no research on this question, as <laughs> strange as it might seem, yet this huge public interest. So I decided, because of the interest from journalists like yourself, um, to do a study because I was tired of saying I don't know. So... Now I can say with reasonable certainty that probably there is a relationship between food and dreaming. It's, it's the first study, and it is a study based on self-reports of people, uh, students, really. We had about 400 students, and we asked them uh, if they noticed any relationship. So their responses are, are more or less uh, reliable. We don't know. But about 18% of the people said that they did notice relationships. And we asked specifically, well, what if, if you've seen anything? And the most common food that was uh, that was indicated was in the class of dairy products. So milk, yogurt, cheese especially was common. And you know, people noticed that their dreams uh, after eating cheese or dairy products were uh, more vivid or more bizarre or sometimes more distressing. You see, I'm, I'm wanting to dig into that. I want to know, is it hard cheese? Is it soft cheese? Is it blue uh, cheese? <laughs> I, I would like to know that. You know, there was a study done several years ago by the, I think it's the British Cheese Board, um, and it, it was funded by that group, so the, the, the results are very suspect. But they claim that certain kinds of cheeses would lead to certain kinds of dreams. Uh, I forget exactly which cheese, uh, but, you know, you dream with celebrities if you had a certain kind of brie or cheddar and so forth. And <laughs> that, that just strikes me as um, unrealistic and, and a good publicity stunt. So going back to your empirical research and, and yeah. yes, some associations, but what do we know about the, the nature of the dreaming? What changed in the dreams of those subjects? Well, this is the lingering question is that we do – see that people will report themselves um, that they, they notice relationships. At least one out of five people might. But the responses are varied like you might expect. There was no consistent pattern, and but we didn't really analyze the dreams for that because our sample wasn't big enough. Uh, but the second part of the research, we were more interested in a, in more general relationships between diet and, and uh, dreaming. 
And I think that part of the research is a bit more solid because we're not just basing our results on what people's claim, because people's claims could be based on anything. It, it could be that they've read about McKay's uh, rare bit fiend and his, his many dreams about cheese, or it could be there's other folklore <laughs> that has been passed down from generation to generation that if you eat before bed, uh, or if you eat pickled walnuts, you know, you'll have nightmares. It could be that, well, maybe there are some accuracies and maybe people with uh, lactose intolerance are, in fact, having uh, bad dreams if they eat some cheese before bed. Well, that's, but, the, that's the interesting thing, because there is clearly a relationship between healthy eating and, and good rest. Um, and that, maybe that's where the whole dream, sleep, dream food thing comes into, into sort of sharp relief. Right. And this is, in fact, partly what we found, because we did ask a lot of questions about sleep and the quality of sleep. And in fact, when we, uh, well, we gave other questionnaires as well on um, dietary habits, dietary motivations, because as you know, people will eat or overeat or binge eat uh, for different reasons. And we wanted to know if maybe dreaming was related to any of these uh, pathological. So but we did find two general patterns, and, and one was uh, related to disturbing dreams. And uh, the disturbing dreams tended to be related to poor sleep, but also um, you know, evidence that people were on a diet or they were prone to emotional eating, for example, if you're under stress, rather than eating when you're hungry or eating junk foods, or um, having to exercise more cognitive restraint about their own eating. But the vivid dreams, they had the opposite pattern. That is, people with, who report a lot of vivid dreams tended to have a healthy eating style. That is, fewer sleep problems, and more likely to be eating healthy food, more likely to, to be fasting, that is, to have longer breaks between their meals, which we thought was quite interesting, because fasting in the past has been a a, a mechanism for inducing dream visions amongst, say, Native people or so forth. And, and uh, so the fact that we'd see a, a relationship there is quite interesting. And, of course, there, there's, there's a subtext to this too, which, which suggests perhaps that the dream is a disturbance of rest, that dream is a disturbance of sleep, when in fact perhaps it's an element of good rest and good sleep. Well, there's undeniably relationships between the quality of sleep and dreaming, but it's it's not always clear what that might be. Uh, for example, if you were to sleep in on the weekend, mm. say you had much more sleep than you, you normally might, there's a very good chance that you would have a, a vivid dream. Some people, they have their lucid dreams on the weekends because they allow themselves to sleep in, and sleeping in capitalizes on the fact that the REM propensity of the, of the sleep-wake cycle is at its maximum around 8 to 10 o'clock in the morning. And so you have these really big dreams at that time. So yes, someone who sleeps more is more likely perhaps to have a vivid, intense dream. And any foods that would lead you to sleep in, they might indirectly, via the longer sleep, produce vivid dreams. I mean, this is an idea that's been around since the ancient Greeks. They, they believed that indigestion was um, a factor in, in dreaming, but they thought that eating close to bedtime hmm. was what boosts the bad dreams. They thought that the dreams that occurred in the morning, the ones that I was just talking about, the vivid um, 
vivid ones were actually free from that because there was less they were less likely to be affected by digestion occurring much later in time and they thought that those were the spiritual or sometimes the you know the uh, precognitive dreams the, the the most important dream tor thank you so very much anytime and sweet dreams uh, tor nilsson he's director of the dream and nightmare laboratory at the university of montreal in every dream home a heartache And every step I take Takes me further from heaven Tell him he's dreaming, or nigh on. A, a dream that became a sudden reality might just have an edge of nightmare. So we lower the bar on dreaming. A place to live is the great Australian dream. The mundane, passing as the magical. They're rising daily But home, oh sweet home It's only a saying The Australian dream From Belpush to Fawcett Graham Davison is an emeritus professor of history at Monash University. Graham, home ownership, the Australian dream... When did that association first come into being? I'm not sure that when the when the phrase was first used, but it, it really, home ownership has been an Australian ideal for at least almost 200 years. Um, you've got to think of the people who came to Australia, many of them from British cities where they'd had to live under the tutelage of a landlord. And one of the things that was foremost in their minds when they came and, and their ideals of freedom and independence was the idea of having your own house. Mm. And so at a surprisingly early stage, you know, already by the 1870s and 1880s, Australians have the highest rates of home ownership in the world. Um, in Australian cities, we had about 40% about plus, and that's at a time when in British cities, probably fewer than 5% had their own homes, and even in American cities, there are very few cities that got to anything like that level. You can understand, yes, that, that how that would be to, to possess space. That's right. In a new country for the colonialists, would and be... we think first, don't we, of you know, free selection and mm. of la of life on the land. But of course, e even then, for many people, it was life in the cities, or if they were on the gold fields. Very, one of the things that um, was associated with the miners' right was the right to erect your own house on that plot of land. And that was a tradition that began in Cornwall in England and was transposed to Australia as well. So on the Ballarat goldfields, home ownership rates were as high as 70%. If we take it back to the beginnings of colonial Australia, Arthur Phillip didn't quite envision this no, it's private interesting. position. No, he actually originally expected that all the land would be owned by the government. And, and gradually what happens is that people begin to, um, quite without authority, to take possession of bits of land. And, and it really gets to the point by the 1830s where Governor Darling has to really regularise what was effectively squatting. Um, so we think of squatting on the on the, the rural frontier, but there was mm. squatting in Sydney and Melbourne as well. That, that high incidence, that, that extraordinary world-leading rate of home ownership in, in Australia, that must take everything in its wake. That must distort, if you like, public policy in this country. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, it really, uh, governments don't actively begin to support home ownership with grants or taxation policies much until the 20th century. Mm. But in indirect ways, they were subsidising it. For example, governments built railways 
in urban areas that actually enabled people to reach areas around the cities that they previously wouldn't have been able to reach for suburban suburban settlement. So that's an indirect way in which we subsidised the, the suburban way of life and home ownership, which, of course, went with it. I wonder if we could imagine uh, an Australia of landlords and renters, how that would change the shape of the place. Well, it probably would have. It's interesting to speculate if we'd been um, settled by the French, perhaps. Um, mm. I think, you know, the home ownership ideal, although it was relatively few people attained it in England, it was mm. already in the minds of people. And if you came from Ireland, of course, we had lived under an English landlord even more uh, would you want to be out from under it? So I think I think it, it was a, a powerful ideal um, uh, it, and it really was associated people's minds with democracy. Remember in England, between 1832 and 1867, the only people who could get the right people to vote... People property. You had to have property. And so um, very often, even though by 1856 mm. in Australia, people had... We had manhood suffrage, which gave every adult male the vote. Nonetheless, there was in people's minds the idea that it was associated too with political independence. You had a stake in the country. You had a, a right to express your view. So the great democratising principle in this place is... is Ownership is, it is. It is, is. I think, for a long while, and it and it's tolerated because it's it's relatively democratically shared. Mm. Um, interestingly, in the in the eighteen eighties, when you look at um, home ownership in Australian cities, um, the the difference between the home ownership rate of people who are rich, merchants and people of that kind, and the relatively poor labourers and tradesmen, is relatively slender. I mean, pe people who are relatively humble, from relatively humble backgrounds, attain home ownership at quite a high rate. And that remains true through much of the 20th century. And yet it, it's late in the 20th century that we begin to disturb this pattern through investment, That's right. through distorting the, the value of that yeah, property. Yes, you know, um, home ownership probably peaked in some time in around in the 1970s, around 1980, according to the census. About 70% of householders in Australia then owned or were buying their own homes. And after that, it begins to change. Um, and as you as you say, it, it very often it's now more and more of a division between those who can afford to get their own home mm. and those who can't. We're, that's now become very acute um, in Australian cities, but it was beginning as much as 30 or 40 years ago. And it has that, that, that consequence, I guess, in, in the psychology of the country, in a place so accustomed to a particular vision of itself based around the individual possession of property to be excluded from that yes. is to be disqualified from the, from the polity almost. It is. I'm not sure that it, it, it should or that everybody thinks it should, but I think that that was the historical background. And if you go back to the 70s, the Whitlam government, um, which wanted to reform our cities in various ways, put quite a lot of emphasis on the idea of trying to enable... Uh, ordinary people to get their own their own homes, mm. but it also was beginning to recognise that there was going to be a group of people who would maybe never ever get there. And so much is, is staked around it. The, the home is is the life investment of most Australians who own one. Yes. This is the substance on which they will draw in you know, the, the non-working phase of their life. Exactly, that's right. And I think it provided, if, if, if you had owned your own home and you were on the pension, you could get by. Yep. That was true of my own parents. My own parents retired with very little behind them, but they'd managed to pay off their house and they lived quite comfortably and but modestly on the government pension. Now, of course, there's going to be a group of people who are going to be facing old age without 
that security. But if we were, I think, to define more closely this idea of the Australian dream, it is precisely that of... Of, of saving, acquiring, and then that investment securing your retirement life. The, the owner-occupied house has another aspect to it as well, which is that you have more freedom to actually control your environment. For a long mm. while, it's mm. become less so now, but for a long while, if you were renting, you couldn't even put a picture on the wall without the permission of the landlord. You couldn't cultivate the garden. Uh, now, I think, um, and for many people, the attraction of home ownership was not just as an investment, it had value also in as a, a way of controlling your own living space. Um, and that, I think, remains remains a valuable thing. The, the whole DIY phenomenon where you can actually go to Bunnings and you can, you know, modify your own space, that was seen as something very valuable by many people. And it is interesting, you know, I mean, this is an established pattern from, from colonisation to perhaps the late 20th century, and yet as it starts to shift, we see the attitudes of people towards home ownership changing quite quickly. Yes, and it begins to change, I think, in the 70s and 80s as some of the things that we welcomed at the time, like the entry of women to the workforce, has now kind of produced a state of affairs, hasn't it, where in order for anyone to buy our own house, you're pretty much reliant upon two incomes. Um, and, of course, if since, since um, well-qualified, able, rich people tend to marry each other, the effect of that is to compound the difference between those who have and those who haven't. So the very high prices of houses that we now experience in Australian cities are really only attainable either by people who have high qualifications and some wealth of their own or the, through the bank of mum and dad, and which, of course, means, again, that you're reliant upon middle-class or upper-class parents to subsidise your way into the into the home ownership business. Increasingly a, a dream. Yes, it is. It's becoming more of a dream for many people, unhappily. Graeme, thank you so much. Pleasure. Graeme Davison, Emeritus Professor of History, Monash University. Dream home, dream lover, dream job, dream holiday... Dreaming of dinner, or perhaps sleeping after all, our fixing on dreams sets our lives in, in a passive, neutral, lying back, eyes half closed, making shapes from passing clouds. The dream fuels us, the dream drives us, the dream once attained is destined to be dreamt again. The dream, to be truly dreamy, must be impossible. Plant Dreaming. Tim Whistle is director of Melbourne's Royal Botanic Gardens. Tim, do plants sleep? Well, some seem to. In fact, it's only recently we've confirmed that trees sleep by dropping their branches just a little bit. There was this wonderful study done in, uh, it's done a nursery actually in Hungary, where they, they watch the trees or tree branches just drop about nine centimetres at night and gradually come back up again. And the effect of that for well, the tree would be what? 
Yeah, well, no one quite knows. It's, it, <laughs> it, it sort of looks like they're resting, and it, it may be more that the turgidity of the cells just drops a bit, so they're really kind of, they are sort of relaxing and then tightening up in the morning, but no one quite knows why they would do We it. should resist our more outrageous anthropomorphic impulses, possibly. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and also some trees don't do it, and some go up and down, and there's a, a, lot, of, a lot of inconsistency among, uh, amongst those in the nursery. They may not be dreaming, but plants can be quite active after dark. Well, they do a lot of stuff. In fact, I, I think they're quite active at night and almost the opposite of dreaming, I suppose. But there are desert plants that are soaking up carbon dioxide at night. So they can't open their pores on their leaves during the day. It's too hot. So they suck in all that gas at night and then they do their producing of sugars during the day. So they're working busily at night, taking in all those gases. There's There's trees that are tracking how long the night is so they know when to flower. So they're they're going to flower at the right time of year. They're measuring how long that, that night is. We talk about day length and things in science. How do they but, do that? Well, they have these little chemicals that change. They're called phytochromes, and they change from one state to another, uh, whether it's dark or light. They're sort of the light reaction. The light comes into the cell and makes that chemical change, and then they know it's, it's, it's how long the night is. They've got a body clock. They do. And, then, and look, <laughs> there's also a, a whole lot of insects out there pollinating, so there are Flowers attracting moths. There's jasmine and potosporum out there with pale flowers. There's musty ones with strong colours attracting bats and things like uh, banana flowers, that kind of thing. So, all, yeah, and even marsupials. So there's lots of activity. Well, there is, there is, I believe, one particular giant water lily which does something to a beetle overnight. Oh, look, it, it does. And in fact, the beetle perhaps dreams a little, but this, this is a fantastic story. And it's one that I know Sir David Attenborough loves, and he's, he's told it a few times himself, but it's the, the giant water lily from the Amazon. And it produces these large white flowers. And you can see these in some botanic gardens as well. And they emerge from the water with a sweet scent and they're quite warm. And the Amazonian scarab beetle, that's the one that gets attracted in there, mm -hmm. it goes inside, it starts to eat, it, it feeds, it has sex, it enjoys itself. But while it's doing that, the flower closes up and it goes down beneath the water. So this poor little beetle is stuck in that flower as it goes underground, well, not underground, under the water. And for the whole night, it's sitting there dreaming, I hope, a little bit, but, you know, fulfilling its, its pleasures underwater. Come the next day, the flower opens again. This time, though, it's pink in colour, which doesn't attract the beetle. There's no perfume, which doesn't attract the beetle, and it gradually gets cool. So that slightly rattled beetle then flies away to find another white flower and pollinates. It takes the pollen with it. Beetle thinks it's on set of Hangover 3, is it? <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 well, I don't know whether it's like a bed and breakfast, whether it thinks that's been a, an okay sort of night, or whether it's just tricked into being huddled in with the pollen and taken from one flower to another. And then we have, of course, those flowers that... that burst into life just in the early morning. Yeah, there are. The ones that just open in the morning, the ones that open sort of midway through the day. And every plant, in fact, has its own little timing of when the, when the plants open. And there are a surprising number that do things in the morning and and evening. And I mean, one, one great evening one is the, uh, the cycad, which attracts weevils. So those cycads with the big cones, they are, in the evening they, they produce a, a warmth again. They, they make a nice warm flower, a perfume, and the beetles are attracted in so they can spend a nice dreamy night in the cycad. So do the plants themselves dream, I wonder? And if they did, what would a plant dream of? Well, it might dream of attracting pollinators so it can reproduce. So that's it's it's that's if it's dreaming of sex and that kind of thing, I suppose. But maybe it's just dreaming of a, a, a nice sunny day next day to, to you know to fulfil its uh, desires and produce its sugars. I suspect plants have flying dreams. 
flying dream. Hmm, where they leave their rootedness behind and ah, just yeah, yeah, travel through the true. space. Well, they, they might speed up too because, you know, plants do everything so slowly that perhaps their dreams are, I'm running around in the forest, I'm jumping over fences and all the things that they don't see them do. So they, they kind of speed up their life. I think all that's nonsense, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's science, Jonathan, that's science. Tim Edwards. And on we go, slipping from life to work to reverie to dream. We dream all sorts of impossible dreams and jostle at the, the foes and the forces and sad importunities that keep us from them. Don't die wondering. Don't dream it. Be it. You've been listening to Lost and Found, a Blueprint for Living production this week. On Dreams. You heard Tor Nielsen, a researcher at the University of Montreal and director of the Dream and Nightmare Laboratory, Graham Davison, Emeritus Professor of History at Monash University, and Tim Entwistall, Director of the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. Producers are Mira Adler-Gillies and Buffy Gorilla. Technical production by Brendan O'Neill and Christina Miltiadu. I'm Jonathan Green. Don't <laughs>